We are live from the studios of WMYU. This is In-Depth on Sports. I am your host, Ian Colucci, and folks... This is an all-timer right here. A fantastic show this week. We have got extensive Super Bowl coverage of the Rams' victory over the Cincinnati Bengals. And while I am slightly disappointed that, A, the team I was rooting for lost, and B, that our prediction was incorrect, I can honestly say that it really didn't matter. It really didn't matter because we got to see the best wide receiver in the NFL do what he does best, a two-touchdown Super Bowl MVP winning performance for Cooper Cup. And the Rams, of course, beating the Bengals by the score of 23-20. to We are going to be breaking all of this down today. We're going to be going through just highlights, analysis, everything with this game. And uh, frankly, I'm not really going to be talking about it that much, but a halftime show for the ages if you are a millennial, anyone between the ages of 25 and 45, you were probably pretty dang thrilled that you got to see all the stars from your youth come back out and put on quite a show for the viewing public. So that was obviously fantastic, but we're really going to be sticking with the game here, of course, because we had a, an all-timer in terms of a quarterback battle sort of you have the young gun in Joe Burrow going up against the underdog of a lifetime in Matthew Stafford just in terms of how he has been counted out for 10 years with the Detroit Lions finally finds a home in LA and has managed to find success in his first year with the team leading them to their first Super Bowl since 1999. It was uh, a long 23-year wait that involved a move from Los Angeles to St. Louis back to Los Angeles and eventually, of course, a Super Bowl victory led by the the incomparable Cooper Cup, Matthew Stafford, and you got to really feel for Aaron Donald, who finally, after seven years of some playoff success and arguably being known as one of the best defensive players in the NFL and among the all-timers, I would say, in terms of defensive prowess and ability, he finally gets his ring and certainly showed his finger to the crowd to know that he wants that ring on his ring finger and he didn't want, and he had no shame in telling anyone that. And we're going to have to see, obviously, because as many people realize, uh, Rodney Harrison reported on NBC just before the Super Bowl began that if he did win, that he possibly would announce his retirement. That is going to be very interesting to see going forward if arguably one of the best defensive players in the league at the top of his game, mind you, is going to call it quits after just seven seasons in the league. And we've seen that pattern a little bit as of late. I think a lot more players are starting to realize that maybe they don't want this long-term damage, supposedly, for playing in the league for a longer period of time. And... I think Donald is following the model set by Luke Keekley, who, again, another amazing defensive player for the Carolina Panthers after a short time in the league, decided to call it quits. And he was at that point, I would say, one of the top three middle linebackers in the NFL. He decided his time was up in the league and he retired never to be seen again and same thing goes for Andrew Luck a little bit different he had a little more time in the league uh, I think it was eight years at his point maybe nine I'm not sure but uh, at his at, at the point for him he, again very good season with the Colts after that he just decided I'm going to retire after a short time in the league supposedly 
there were injury concerns there, not necessarily long-term effects. It wasn't necessarily because he just decided to retire at a young age. There were injury issues there, but still, a short eight-year career for a a somewhat dominant star in the NFL. And now Aaron Donald, I would say better than Keekley and Andrew Luck at the uh, at their respective positions. And he might call it quits. That is going to be very interesting to see. So we're going to get into that, of course, and we're going to definitely talk some highlights from this game, definitely some controversies with some uh, some questionable penalty calls or, mind you, not called uh, in many instances in terms of some deep passes to uh, one of the deep passes to Jamar Chase as well as some uh, possible offsides with Aaron Donald that wasn't called. A lot of things with the refs that I think a lot of people are pointing out as questionable. Uh, I, I, if, you're, if you're saying the game is fixed or that the league is scripting the games, please stop. Please stop. You're, you're, you're contributing to a narrative that is probably non-existent. I can never, you know, you can never say that something doesn't exist. You don't know for a fact unless you are actually internal with the NFL, and I am not. So I don't know for a fact, obviously, that that's what's happening. But this narrative, to me, is pretty ridiculous. I, I really don't think that that's what they're going for. I mean, if you are the NFL, wouldn't you want the Bengals to win? Everybody's rooting for them. So if you're, quote-unquote, fixing the game... There's no reason why you would have instances where you would give the Rams a favorable advantage. But, you know, I'm not going to entertain any of those ridiculous theories there. Um, But still, fantastic game regardless. Uh, Questionable calls we're going to get into. Going to talk about what the future holds for Joe Burrow and Matt Stafford. I think, you know, they're definitely going to be back. I think Cincinnati sort of realizes that this is their core going forward and they're probably not going to make a ton of changes in terms of uh, maybe uh, free agent signings or anything like that. They are getting a couple guys off the books this offseason, but I think the bigger concerns are with the Rams, who have many of their veterans, such as Odell Beckham, who who we don't know. We're also going to get into Odell's injury concerns, is also coming off the books. Von Miller also coming off the books. A lot of older veterans that were key to this Rams Super Bowl run that may not be here for the upcoming season. So we're going to see if the Rams are going to make any moves to uh, negate those effects uh, in the offseason. And, uh, you know, having the 30-second pick uh, or removing excuse me, removing all of your future with those all those first-round picks for the Super Bowl win, yes, it worked out for you, but long-term, are there concerns? Yeah. There definitely are, and we're going to get into that a little bit, too. Also, big guest joining us this week, former director of communications for the NBA and a marketing manager with the Phoenix Suns, Mr. David Cooper, going to be joining us in the second half of the show. He is going to be discussing, one, his thoughts on a fantastic Super Bowl and the implications of it going forward, as well as his feelings on both NBA and NFL content that is you know, being put out there over the last few months or so and how the long-term consequences, implications, effects of exclusively moving to these digital platforms. We're going to be getting into that a little bit with him. Uh, He's going to be giving his thoughts on the Rams-Bengals game, of course, as well as his NBA predictions and his theories on social media in the digital age. Um, Definitely going to be exciting to hear what he has to say. I know for a fact that the interview with him definitely turned into corners that I didn't really think we would get into, and David did a great job, so kudos to him. But let's start. Got to start. What do you think? Super Bowl 56. I mean, this is this is a game that is piggybacking off of six straight phenomenal, phenomenal uh, AFC championship games and divisional round games. I was I was absolutely thrilled to see how 
the NFL got seven straight games that were phenomenal for both ratings, intrigue. People were excited for the Super Bowl this year. This was not a year where there was less sort of energy surrounding it. We had, you know, Joe Burrow with his fashion statements, uh, Matthew Stafford coming in as just this casual, cool guy. If you noticed... Joe Burrow, Joe Burrow walks into the stadium uh, for Super Bowl Sunday. He he is wearing an outfit that I would say is probably worth more than than the money I made. But it's probably worth more than the money I've made in my lifetime. Uh, it's astonishing to see the stuff that he has on. And yes, he looks great. But what I love is that Matthew Matthew Stafford comes in. He, he's wearing a black T shirt that could that probably a Hanes T shirt that is maybe worth. Five dollars, four dollars. I mean, I could have gone and picked it up at a at a five below, and I would have rep- been able to replicate Matthew Stafford's look because he doesn't care. He does not care one bit about looking cool. He's just coming in to do the job, and that's exactly what he did. And you know, when you have this game between, I would say, two, of two of the best teams in their respective conference, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. I would say this year the Rams were the best team in the NFC. That's the case. The Bengals, it's a little bit different. I think Kansas City is probably a better team. And I think, you know, when you have when you play one game, it's hard to, you know, yes, Cincinnati did beat Kansas City, but in retrospect, do we really think that in total Kansas City is a worse team than Cincinnati? I don't think so. I think if you played them again, I think Kansas City would probably win more times than Cincinnati would if you had like a five or seven game series. Um, it's not necessarily how the NFL works. I mean, there's always that, you know, rationalistic method that comes in with, you know, oh, if Kansas City beats Cincinnati, then therefore Kansas City is a better team than Cincinnati. I don't think, you know, that logic or reasoning in the NFL really translates. It's like, it's the same thing with college basketball. You know, if, you know, Iona beats Kansas uh, and Kansas uh, and Kansas beats Baylor, does that mean Iona is better than Baylor? Probably not, but Again, rationalistic method doesn't really work. I think that's dumb reasoning. But still, L.A., definitely the best team in the NFC. Cincinnati, not necessarily so. But still, we're excited about this matchup, regardless of what it says on paper. And, you know, this was a game that was supposedly supposed to be, you know, L.A. was supposed to contain Joe Burrow pretty well. Uh, they, it was supposed to be difficult for him to get off passes. Uh, he was going to have to go with a lot of quick slants, out routes, not necessarily going to be a threat from deep. And well, he certainly proved that wrong. I mean, the, 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 I would say one of the biggest highlights that people are going to be talking about with the Super Bowl. And even though the Bengals didn't win, I still think it's a memorable play is in the first half where you have Joe Burrow throw the bomb to Jamar Chase against Jalen Ramsey, who is probably a top five cornerback in the NFL. I don't think um, anyone would really argue with that. Um, but still, it's all right. So pass goes up. It's going to be about a 40, 50 yard play. And Jalen Ramsey gets beat pretty badly. Uh, the, now, this is where the controversy comes in. If you watch the replay of the play, you can see Jamar Chase reach out grab Ramsey's face mask seems like and push him over which would be obviously pass interference offense pass interference and that of course would negate any effects of that play but it was not called Jamar Chase comes in pulls out pulls out his hand as a little Odell magic with the one hand makes an outstanding catch a Super Bowl memorable catch that people are going to be talking about for years to come even though even though they lost I still think I still think it's a memorable play but the controversy, the controversy here, of course, is was this what did this matter? Did this matter? Did, did, did this penalty that we saw here, did that impact the rest of the game? Did, 
Well, obviously not. The Bengals lost. It wouldn't have mattered anyway, but I still think there are a lot of issues there with the way that this game was called. Granted, if you look at the play with Jamar Chase, where there's clearly some, you know, pass interference there or offensive pass interference there, you also have definitely some instances on the Rams side where Aaron Donald was probably over the line of scrimmage on a couple of plays. You had a instance where at the end of the game, we had at least four, five penalties in the end zone where um, where the Rams and the Bengals kind of got a little sloppy after a relatively clean game. But keep in mind, the penalties that were called certainly had an impact on the game. And while they probably did offset each other in the long run, it brings to question how the officiating is impacting a lot of these games and when you turn back to a few years ago I think the big thing that really drew drew people's attention to this issue was the game between the Rams and the Saints a few years ago where uh it was a disastrous disastrous missed pass interference call in between this game between the Rams and the Saints I believe it was 2018 uh where you had um it was uh I would say you could argue it was 2019 you could argue the worst no call in the NFL, and uh, this was uh, this was also with the Rams. Of course, they had won the NFC Championship against the New Orleans Saints, but pass interference calls uh, uh, they they became reviewable after this. And this was because you know this on this you know off the cuff officiating has really had a lot of issues over the last few years. I think now with you know social media and all that stuff, people are drawn to these missed calls. We can see them again and again on YouTube if we want to. And it just the NFL can get slammed for it. And I can understand this 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 call had changed the game. And now, you know, we're we're three years out from this. Uh and you're still having the same issues come to fruition. And well, I still, again, I still don't think it probably impacted the integrity or the outcome of the game. I think the Rams probably would have won regardless uh, because, granted, the penalties did offset each other. Let, let's face it. If there were, you know, if if these penalties had come in instances for one team specifically, so like if, if most of the penalties were called in the Rams or most of the penalties were called in the Bengals, if there were mistakes there, the NFL is getting toasted and even more so than they already are with the head coaching issue with Brian Flores. I mean, granted, the league is at, an, I would say, an all-time high for popularity. Uh, I don't, the Super Bowl ratings, the ratings for the game, uh, it was pretty, pretty dang good. Uh, over 100 million, as we expected. Uh, it was, if you, by the way, it's including Peacock, the streaming services, it will top 100 million. But keep in mind, this was their best in five years. Uh, this, their, uh, you know, you had a, you know, ninety-one million in, uh, in, in twenty twenty-one. You had a uh, hundred and one in, uh, in twenty twenty. But uh, keep in mind, they haven't seen the hundred million mark in quite a while. And you know, since the early part of the decade, now you're in the hundred million mark. Still, people are pretty excited about it. But regardless, good win for ratings, but have a lot, a lot, a lot of issues. In terms of league, um, I would say the reputation that the league has is coming into question now in terms of refereeing, diversity uh, diversity hiring. Um, now, granted, the, the diversity hiring issue, yes, it's certainly something that should need to be addressed, but it, it's hard to not overlook the, hypocritic, the, the, uh, the hypocritical aspect to that. And uh, I really think that the NFL has a lot of issues to deal with, but still, popularity for the league definitely increasing so uh definitely they're, they're gonna have to look at to it but i digress gonna move from that into the actual game itself and 
You had a 23 to 20 game. That was the final. But the Rams looked like they were they looked like they were going to come out of the gate strong. Matthew Stafford looked pretty solid on this op- on, on his uh, opening drives. The running game, the running game, mind you, never, never once got going throughout the entire game. I mean, keep in mind, five different players ran the ball for the Rams. Cam Akers, Daryl Henderson, Cooper Cup, Stafford, and Sonny Michelle. They could barely combine for over 45 yards. They, they, uh, Cam Akers had 13 carries for 21 yards, averaged less than two yards per carry. That's that is that is brutal considering how, you know, the the Rams are depleted on the receiving end of the ball. I mean, Cooper Cup and Odell Beckham, yes, they're going to be anchoring this uh this anchoring this team, but obviously Odell gets hurt in the second quarter with the possible torn ACL and you're left with Cooper Cup. So you really need to get the run game going if you want to win the game. And they never did and yes, it worked out for them, but uh, I can't say that you know, this speaks highly of one the Rams running game despite having pretty solid weapons on the receiving end of the ball. The rushing game has never really picked up momentum ever since Cam Akers' injury. You know, Daryl Henderson was okay throughout the year. Sony Michelle, relatively good season, but this was a receiving-based organization, and yes, they did manage to pick up the win, but not exactly their best performances by any stretch of the word. Um, there's a reason, even though Matthew Stafford was the favorite to win Super Bowl MVP going into the game itself, there's a reason why he didn't win. He wasn't phenomenal um well granted there are issues i mean he only had he had to rely on cooper cup entirely for the second half of the game uh you know that that's that's pretty difficult for anybody for anybody uh even if it's tom brady or aaron Rodgers, if you're out of weapons you saw how it affected tom brady in his game for the buccaneers in the divisional round i mean he's lost without antonio brown uh chris godwin i mean he only had mike evans and that that that's kind of the same thing that's been happening here in LA. I mean, Cooper Cup and Mike Evans, granted, I would say Cooper Cup's definitely a better receiver, but Mike Evans is certainly no slouch in the receiving game. Definitely, I would say, in the top seven, top six in uh, NFL receivers. And Brady, that was his only weapon. I mean, Godwin is a top 10 guy. Uh, Antonio Brown, when he's healthy and actually performing for a team, he's been number one at one point. I mean, this was granted five years ago, but he's one of the best receivers in the NFL. Tom Brady has all these great weapons on the receiving end, and he didn't, he was wasn't able to use them in the most important game of the season and the same goes for Stafford he had Cooper Cup for the second half I mean Odell Beckham yes he had a huge play in the first quarter with his touchdown I mean this was this was the point I mean after the Odell score which you heard on the opening reel of Super Bowl highlights I mean that that sort of solidified that the Rams were coming out strong the defense wasn't going to be able to contain the passing game and frankly they caught a break losing Odell um you know, if if the Bengals had to deal with both of them, this could have been a, a much higher point margin, 10, maybe uh, 10, 13 points. Uh, I know the spread was four and a half. And granted, if you pick the Bengals this week, you lucked out. I mean, it was a three point game, but, you know, the spread was four and a half. That's that's pretty close. And. I think Odell, some, having someone like Odell and, granted, not even having Tyler Higby, your tight end for the entire season, he's not playing either. I mean, that that swings the game pretty heavily in the Rams' favor. Um, now, as you as you remember, if you'd listened to the show last week, I did say the Bengals were going to win 31-28. to And the reason why I said that is because I thought that the game itself would be relegated to a 
pretty much an all-out passing war that was that the that the the rushing games wouldn't you know come to fruition, and that was true. It, uh, they, they both of them had to extensively rely on their passing games, but I think the offense was a little less than what I expected. I thought that you know there would be more run and gun types of plays, more trickery. We did see that. I mean, there was uh, Joe Mixon's touchdown pass, which was pretty impressive considering that he's a running back uh out of oklahoma who never i don't think he ever threw a pass in college uh and now you're on the big stage you throw one pass for a touchdown pretty dang good um still uh i still think that i would have i would have thought there would be more of an offensive firepower to this game and there wasn't necessarily as much but it was a close game i i thought you know the Bengals were definitely going to give them a run and i thought they would pull it out at the end of the day they did not it came down to the nitty-gritty of just having the ball in the last two minutes being able to effectively manage the clock and score on the last few plays of the game that's exactly what the rams did sean mcveigh had had you know a lot of issues people were questioning his coaching going into uh going into this game there were instances if you remember a few weeks ago where the rams uh you know this was this was a pretty poor clock management performance by Sean McVay a few weeks ago where you had, you know, he hands the ball off to Cam Akers three times uh, in, you know, a situation where one pass play seals the game for you. And granted, they won the game, but still, they 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 blew a chance to close the game. They didn't. They gave Tom Brady the ball back and, uh, uh, excuse me, Jimmy they gave Jimmy Garoppolo the ball back. And what do you know? He scores. And the Rams, I think they learned their lesson from that. And Going up against a team that has been remarkably effective throughout the entire year, making big plays in clutch moments in the last two minutes of the game, the Bengals have been very successful. They've managed to tie games with Evan McPherson's bronze leg. Uh, they've managed to have Joe Burrow come up with some great game-winning drives, effectively using weapons like T. Higgins, Jamar Chase, and getting down the field in clutch time. And, you know, the Rams knew that the Bengals were going to be able to do this, and they knew that clock management was going to be the be-all and end-all of this game, and it was. They had the ball in the last two minutes. They effectively managed the clock. They find Cooper Cup in almost every play. It's one of the reasons why he won Super Bowl MVP. He gets, I would say, the, there's no, there's no doubt in my mind he should, he should have won uh, Super Bowl MVP. He has 92 yards, two touchdowns. He has eight receptions for 92 yards and two TDs, and that's a Super Bowl MVP winning performance. If you know, unless your quarterback does an absolutely amazing job, and Stafford didn't, so. That's who it was left to, Cooper Cup, and he did such a great job in this game. Uh, he was he was the reason why. When you look at a Super Bowl MVP, does this player does this player win the game for the team? Is without him, would they have lost that game? Absolutely, absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind that if the Rams did not have Cooper Cup in this game, they would have lost this game because you know no Odell, no Cooper Cup. Oh my God, what are you left with, Van Jefferson? That's that is brutal for Stafford and. Granted, he has Cooper Cup. He made sure he got it to him every single play that he could. And if you look at that last drive, you can see 10-yard over the middle, Cooper Cup. Five-yard out, Cooper Cup. 16 yards into the end zone, Cooper Cup. That's that's what you have to do if you're Stafford. You know he is the guy you trust in this big moment, and that's exactly what he did. And Cup is absolutely deserving of the Super Bowl MVP. And on the other side of the ball, you have Joe Burrow, you know, He's coming into this game. He's coming into this game with, I would say, every, almost all of America, unless you're a, a Rams fan or a Joe Burrow SEC hater. You're rooting for him. You're rooting for him. He's a young guy coming into his first Super Bowl. He has come on a, I would say, somewhat of a Cinderella run. I don't think anyone really had the Bengals going this far, no matter, you know, unless you're really a devout Ohioan. I don't really think 
many fans out there were really expecting Burrow and the Bengals to be able to take out Tennessee or Kansas City and get to this game against the Rams. And he proved everybody wrong in that instance. Uh, and Burrow did have a reasonably good game, 263 for a touchdown. He was pretty solid. But you can see how the weakness in his offensive line really limited a lot of what he could do. And, you know, the Rams defensive front, we've been saying for weeks and weeks on end, is bar none one of the best in the NFL. And I thought that it would, I think the Bengals would have, you know, come out and somewhat negated that effect. They did it a little less so than I would have thought. I, I think they I thought they would have at least given Burrow a chance to establish the running game or maybe, you know, go for some more quick routes. Not necessarily the case. Uh, Burrow had his opportunities and he converted on some, if not most of them, but it wasn't necessarily his finest hour. And I think that's partially due to the line's inability to stop Aaron Donald and Von Miller. Um, you know, there, there's a reason. Uh, if you looked at one of the uh, one of the big stats in this game was the most sacks for a quarterback in Super Bowl history. Um, it was uh, Roger Staubach back in the 1970s. Uh, he was sacked seven times in that Super Bowl. I believe it was uh, Super Bowl eight or Super Bowl seven. I'm not 100% sure on that one, but uh, it was one of the earlier Super Bowls. He was absolutely wrecked, and Joe Burrow, in 50 years, no other quarterback had been sacked that many times except for Joe Burrow. And the weakness of the line, you can't ignore that. And you, uh, I, I was, I thought it wouldn't play as much of a role in a game like this where there would be more offensive firepower. Not necessarily the case. Um, it, it was a fine game for Burrow. It was fine, but eh, it was okay. And it worked out somewhat well for him, but not enough to get the job done. And, you know, this was Burrow. Burrow needed to be, you know, really take a huge step in this game if he wanted to win this game. I mean, this is keep in mind, this is only this is his second season in the league. And he's in a Super Bowl at this point where you have a team that's surrounding him that on paper doesn't look as good as four or five, six other teams in the league. I mean, on paper at best what do you what do you rank this team if you know if just at the start of the playoffs not now if you look at the start of the playoffs they're a top 10 team maybe but now they're on par with any of the big players in this league and you know burrow looks pretty solid but let's face it the receiving game somewhat bailed them out i think you know jamar chase's unbelievable catch and that controversial call there that was a big play there that's accounts for i would say i think that that one play is probably about 10 percent of his yards in that game i mean he's only at 220 uh or 210 if he doesn't make that uh big pass that arguably should not have even uh shouldn't should not have even gone through but you know t higgins t higgins with a phenomenal phenomenal game in this one for 100 yards two touchdowns and granted keep in mind T. Higgins had uh, more yards than Cooper Cup and also caught a pass in the end zone from a running back as a quarterback. When Joe Mixon threw that little, you know, old little looping pass into the end zone and that little trickery play to give the Bengals their only uh, one of their only big uh, one of their only big plays in this game. I mean, that was that was beautiful. I mean, that's that's exactly what you want in a sort of a big game capacity um, from a running back to a wide receiver. And T. Higgins, you know, I think. I think a lot of people realized that Jalen Ramsey was going to contain Jamar Chase somewhat well, even if it wasn't perfect. Jamar Chase had five receptions for 89 yards. Pretty solid game. Ramsey did an okay job, an okay job defending Jamar Chase. I mean, he managed to get a few big plays off, but T. Higgins, the Bengals knew that he was going to be the key to this game. And, you know, without him, the Bengals wouldn't even wouldn't have even had a chance in this one. 100 yards for two TDs, that's a, that's a beautiful performance for any Super Bowl uh, contender. And, you know, 
Higgins has been sort of playing second fiddle a bit to Jamar Chase. I think people underlook his value because Jamar is such a big playmaker. I mean, he's on par now. I would say he's on par now with guys like Tyreek Hill because, you know, Tyreek Hill probably has a little more speed, a little more, you know, experience in the league, and he has been one of the best receivers for the last four or five years or so on par with guys like DeAndre Hopkins as well. But, you know, when you're along that elite category, the number two guy plays arguably a more important role because if the number one guy is contained by one of the best quarter cornerbacks in the league i mean you're you're leaving it down to t higgins and he did a fantastic job uh burrow managed to find him for 20 for huge gains at least a few times i mean he's also keep in mind higgins is coming off a you know coming out of college he's had a clemson with trevor lawrence he is no stranger to big moments i mean he is he played in the national championship twice with the trevor lawrence team that once beat alabama once lost to alabama but um Still, you have big game experience on a national championship stage. I mean, the national championship, you could argue. I mean, I don't know, viewership-wise, it's probably around 40, 35, 40 million. That's pretty dang good compared to, you know, 40% of the biggest television audience in in America, I believe. Um, Still, big game experience. T. Higgins knows what he's doing, and he's certainly proved that even in the NFL, he can come up big in these spots. And he did a great job with 100 yards and two TDs. And, you know, if we turn to the Bengals on the defensive side of the ball, you have... You know, a secondary that has been questioned, questioned in large part because of our, the, the New York Giants old friend, Mr. Eli Apple. And Eli, Eli Apple was a first rounder uh, back in the day uh, out of, I believe, Nebraska no, or uh, Ohio State. Excuse me. He was, uh, the, um, you know, I was thinking Prince of Mucamora, Prince of Mucamora, another cornerback, first rounder for the Giants out of Nebraska. But Eli Apple out of Ohio State, a relatively good corner for the majority of his college career. Um it's it's almost like when you when you're going into this game people know who he is just because he played in a major market like new york um and during his time in new york he he was he was he had some questions there were a lot of botched coverages when he was with the giants uh he wasn't necessarily coming through as a big play corner that the giants wanted him to be so they were willing to let him go. I mean, he 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 joined Cincinnati just a year ago, and he after uh, 2016 with the Giants, the Giants realized their future was not with him. And, you know, they shipped him off to New Orleans. Then he went to Carolina. Then he finds his way to Cincinnati, who is was in desperate need of some secondary players. The Bengals, if you uh, watch one of the graphics on, uh, on NBC on Sunday, you saw that the Bengals essentially made up this defense throughout with free agency. This was, you know, Trey Hendrickson, uh, I would say probably their best defensive player this year. He was not a, not a homegrown Bengal. I mean, he, he, he's coming to, he's 27 now, but he, he's coming off five, four seasons in New Orleans where he had pretty good success. He comes in now to a Cincinnati team, which needs him to be a main player. And he stepped up pretty big for them throughout the entire season. And a lot of guys, Von Bell, uh, Von Bell, uh, who else? Uh, Eli Apple, Chinobe uh, Ouzier, uh, Trey Hendrickson. They're all free agent signings over the last few years or so. B.J. Hill also. They came in because the Bengals needed to remake their defense after the disaster of a defense that they had in the Marvin Lewis era. I mean, th- their team back then was entirely based on an Andy Dalton, A.J. Green you know, passing game that worked pretty well. It got them to the playoffs once uh, a couple times. They, they never won. I mean, they hadn't won a playoff game since 1989. They remake this defense, and that was clearly the key for them to moving forward. 
forward. They they that was the reason why they were able to stay in games against Kansas City and against Tennessee. And now against L.A., the defense did a relatively good job. I think Stafford's a great player. You have to do a good job when you have weapons like Cooper Cup and Odell Beckham. And they did a good job containing him. But still, Eli Apple. A lot of botched coverages. I think if you watch the first touchdown to Odell Beckham, you can see Eli is not able to make the necessary back steps he needs to to get back to Beckham in the corner, who is wide open for a beautiful catch. And it's Odell Beckham. What do you think he's going to do? Drop it? He, Odell Beckham, when he's healthy on the field, is arguably a top five receiver in the NFL. He has done an amazing job adapting to a good team, and he is a key player. I mean, Granted, off the field, there's a lot of problems with him. He is not well liked by he was not well liked by the Giants. He was not well liked by by Cleveland. I think fans were willing to adapt or willing to accept all the off the field nonsense when he was performing. And for a time with the Giants, he was when he had Elias as quarterback. He did a relatively good job, but organizations threw him to the side because of his off field antics. And the Rams are sort of taking a playbook from the uh, from the New England Patriots. If you'll if you'll die, if you'll understand what I'm trying to say here, the Patriots are always willing to sign a player no matter no matter what their off the field issues were. Uh, if you noticed, I mean, Antonio Brown, um, he was uh, the Patriots decided to sign him despite all the huge issues with him. They took a chance on him despite having these numerous off the field problems. The Rams realized that. They can make these big-time signings on questionable guys, and if they get that payoff that they're looking for, it turns them into a Super Bowl team, and that's exactly what happened. Odell looks and plays like a top-10 receiver or top-5 receiver when he is on the field. And, you know, he only had two catches last game for, uh, in the Super Bowl for 52 yards and a touchdown, but he probably would have had more if he didn't potentially blow out his ACL. That is huge. Odell Beckham has been successful when he is on the field with a good quarterback. Now, granted, that's a lot to say there. On the field with a good quarterback, that's a lot of conditions that you need to meet. The Rams were willing to meet those conditions, and he was successful. And, you know, Rappaport, uh, Ian Rappaport reported that, yeah, it looks like it's going to be a torn ACL. And now at this point, you know, you've got seven, six months until, you know, the NFL season resumes again in September. And questions are certainly abundant when you're when you're talking about whether it's Odell Beckham returning to the field in time for training camp or September week one of the NFL season I don't even think that's going to happen I mean look at look at what we've seen in recent ACL injuries this is not a short-term eight to 12 month recovery this is a year this is a year and if you're thinking 12 to 18 months, he's out next year. And no, and granted, now no team is going to take a chance on him in free agency unless they are willing to wait for that waiving period for him um, or that injury period. I mean, if you look at uh, a good example, Anders Lee in the, uh, in the NHL with the New York Islanders, ACL injury out for about 12 to, I would say it was 11 to 12 months. I wasn't sure on the exact count, but that was a year. That was a full year of his career lost. He missed out on playing in the Islanders playoff run. Uh, that was that was a pretty big deal. So I digress. Fantastic Super Bowl. A lot of questions with Odell, as we just mentioned. Definitely a Super Bowl people will remember as a just a good 
it wasn't necessarily a clash of the titans like we've seen in previous years you know patriots seahawks chiefs 49ers chiefs bucks you know this was you know mahomes brady brady versus the legion of boom uh, uh peyton manning versus cam newton this is this is not that but it was a good game that people were excited to see despite these two teams weren't necessarily you know the biggest markets they're medium market teams now I say L.A. is not a big market team because I don't think fans in Los Angeles really give them that devout devotion they were expecting when they moved. But still, two good teams playing in a relatively competitive game that was a perfect conclusion to an NFL playoff season that I don't think anyone could argue was one of the best in history. So I digress. Fantastic Super Bowl. We're now going to move into our guest, Mr. David Cooper. We're going to jump in now with him. After he's going to be he's going to be discussing with us, obviously, his thoughts on the Super Bowl, of course, but also we're going to get into a little bit of NBA talk there. Definitely going to lock, definitely want to stick around here for his thoughts on the Super Bowl, though, because I think it was one of the most interesting interviews I have done in my time doing this show. So David Cooper up next. Stick around. Welcome back to the show, everybody. And joining me this week, a fantastic professor and a key player in the NBA marketing scene for the last 15 to 20 years. He's a professor at New York University, a collaborator, all sorts of roles in the National Basketball Association and beyond. Mr. David Cooper joining us today. David, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing fantastic. I'm glad to be with you. Well, I'm glad to be with you as well. And, you know, on this show this week, we have been diving into the Super Bowl. We have been discussing... All the big the the big storylines, many of the I would say arguably one of the to cap off an NFL season that has been so good in the postseason, and to cap it off with such a great Super Bowl like that was fantastic. And you know, just sort of going off of that, David, what what did you see last night that really stuck out to you? What were some of the high points? What did you think? Why do you think people are really going to care about this Super Bowl for years to come? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great question. I was in Los Angeles and had the honor to kind of you know uh, take part in it, uh, this you know very celebratory event, and it was in a new stadium and you know new faces, new teams that were you know we haven't seen in, in some time. Mm-hmm. I think a couple of takeaways. One, I I, I may have referenced it, the, the new faces. I think what we're seeing in the NFL and maybe across different sports um, is a greater emphasis on the, the athlete story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are less barriers and, you know, there's more interaction directly with an athlete. And I think with players like Joe Burrow, mm-hmm. who has this really interesting legend building around him. Oh yes. Kind of, you know what I mean? Yes. Like it's, it's um, it, you know, some of it's from locker room, you know, uh, kind of the grainy behind the scenes video. And some of it's, you know, his teammates kind of being very outspoken about his leadership and, you know, the way he carries himself. I think that was one thing I took away is that we are hungry for new personalities to be infused into kind of the NFL stories. Mm-hmm. So we had Patrick Mahomes, we've had Tom Brady, we've had all these really wonderful, you know, characters and, and athletes come through. But I think Joe Burrow is a really interesting one. Uh, I think on the other side, you have Matthew Stafford, yeah. who has, you know, who spent all those years toiling in Detroit, who has been just a, a really wonderful citizen off the field, too. And now he finally kind of had his moment. So I think really the drama of all of the um, of all the players that were kind of like participating really helped amplify that game mm-hmm. more so than anything else. I think you were rooting for 
uh, individual athletes, which doesn't always happen in the NFL. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of it's very team-based. So that's one th- one takeaway I took from it. Uh, and you know what? I-, I couldn't agree with you more because I feel like guys like, you know, Joe Burrow, Stafford, Cooper Cup, Jamar Chase, they're all building around this new era of the NFL, which after Tom Brady's a somewhat untimely retirement, but, you know, everyone knew it was mm-hmm. coming at some point. And I feel like it's so refreshing to see all these new guys coming out here. And yeah. per- personally, I'm thrilled about it, and I'm sure as you are too. But, you know, now that the NFL season is over, we are moving into, I would say, it's center stage for the NBA. And you've had so much experience. You know, you were a senior director with the NBA in communications. You worked in media relations for the Phoenix Suns. And we've talked to some guests about how basketball is really driving what is new in sort of sports media and how different teams and different players are being looked at. And I want to know in your wide range of experience in the NBA and different platforms, what are you seeing right now that gets you excited for one? And two, how do you, how do you sort of imagine this year playing out and for the rest of time, what do you see are some of the new innovations that the NBA might be looking towards in publicizing its players? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, the NBA has been a really fascinating, um, you know, case study in terms of how to, um, you know, bridge the fan player divide. Mm-hmm. And I think what, what, what I'm seeing, I think that will play out over the next <clears throat> several weeks and into the playoffs and the finals, similar to the Super Bowl that we talked about really are, uh, is kind of this um, ability for these players to embrace fans in a totally new way. And I, and what I mean by that is, mm-hmm. you know, there's social, there's social media and social media is, has a role in this, mm-hmm. but I think for NBA players in particular, um, it's their, their kind of like actions in the community, their, their activities in the community. I think the NBA is starting to put a, a huge spotlight on a lot of the different, uh, relationships that are taking place between players and coaches and so forth. It's all part of the storyline machine, right? Mm-hmm. They're always pumping that stuff out. But I think the big change and in innovation is going to be um, the NBA embracing the athlete driven media model uh-huh. uh, more, more so than any other league. I think they're, they're, they're kind of like going along for the ride a little bit with, with what the players are putting out there. Uh-huh. Um, I think that's going to be a big uh, force moving forward, which I think brands are starting to invest in Absolutely. athletes versus teams and leagues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the NBA is right there at the forefront. Secondly, and you know, maybe it's a little bit of the technology side of things, but um, I think there, you, you will probably see the NBA embrace platforms like Twitch. Oh, absolutely. More, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. more, like inter- interactive. Um, I think that's really the future of the NBA uh, are platforms like that, which again, it, it feeds into the, the fan athlete divide uh, that has, has kind of like been a part of a lot of different leagues. Mm-hmm. Twitch, interactive, customization, all that stuff the NBA is embracing. I think that's really what we can look forward to. It's interesting. It's interesting that you mentioned that because, you know, we ha- so uh, a couple weeks ago we had a uh, one of the high-ranking executives over at Overtime come and join us, and he discussed how a lot of the platforms like Twitch, like you mentioned, and this sort of customization aspect, being in control, is so vital for leagues like the NBA. And I f- and what I'm noticing is that other leagues, somewhat in terms of maybe Major League Baseball or the NHL or some of the leagues that are on a little bit of the down of maybe on a downward slope, they aren't necessarily 
going for go going full force into this like you see the NBA and somewhat the NFL doing. Do you think that's a big problem for them, or are you seeing them sort of going with what they know best and that sort of helping them maintain their market share? What What do you it, think it, are some of the factors there? Yeah, it might it, it might be the latter. It, it might be just kind of like you know status quo and just you know trying to kind of ride the wave a bit mm-hmm. um do you feel differently I'll, I'll turn the question back to you how do you feel about that because i'm kind of you know what I, i'm it's interesting you're one of the first guests to turn one of my questions around on me and i really <laughs> I, lo- I love that i love that i think it's awesome and in my it, it's interesting because you know i'm a lifelong baseball fan i've grown up with it my entire life and I, I've loved the game for what it is because it's such a because there are so many intricacies that people can really appreciate if they dive into it. But you know, younger fans and maybe those who are more in tune to the NBA wouldn't necessarily be as appreciative of it. And I feel like if the sport wants to maintain its relevance for more for future generations, I feel like they have to embrace it. And while I may not be as necessarily thrilled by that, I feel like it's so vital to the history of the game and keeping it relevant for years to come. That makes sense to me. I, I concur with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm so... I'm so happy that you you see it that way because uh, because you know so what I thought was you know in our first class together as uh, if our viewers don't know uh, Mr. Cooper is a professor over at NYU in our uh, sports management department and you know on our first day he discussed you know in the 1990s he was in the at the finals with Charles Barkley and Michael Jordan watching one of the most historic games in NBA history and you know pivoting off of sort of the way that sports are going nowadays this that kind of basketball I, I mean I've, I've watched highlights of that for years and I was I, I fell in love with it just by watching games like that and when you when I want you to just talk a little bit about what made you fall in love with the game of basketball? You know, you, you mentioned how awesome these yeah. games were and you sort of mentioned and we've been talking about how future generations are going to fall in love with these new sports with these new platforms. What was the case for you? I mean, it was certainly 20, 25 years ago, but yeah. what, what were what were your thoughts? What, what, what were your how are you feeling back then? Yeah, you know, it, it, it was much longer than that, unfortunately, <laughs> but <laughs> there was, you know, there was a mystique. Um, yeah. There was a mystique around the players, and maybe some of that has been diminished a bit because there is so much access. Mm-hmm. But there was a mystique around players like Magic, like Larry, mm-hmm. like Michael, um, that as a youngster, you know, even in high school, you know, I just, I was just kind of drawn to the athleticism and the, the magnetic personalities that you got a chance to see on the court, which you typically wouldn't be able to see in other sports because we're, you're covered by helmets and there's, you know, there's greater distance between fan and player and uh-huh. the action. So I got caught up in the mystique. And yeah. then I started, I worked with the Phoenix Suns uh, right out of, um, right out of high school. Wow. Uh, I interned with them and I got a chance to meet some of the players wow. and even though the mystique may have gone away a little bit because you get a chance to meet someone, uh, there was still that kind of palpable um, passion that these these athletes had for playing the game. And I just kind of got drawn into it, you know, and then I started to see the beauty of the game and how it changed, you know, people around the world. It, it, it you know, brought down divides, you know, it bridged cultures and religions and different societies uh-huh. and some of the political stuff that was going on. And it just became a greater force for me in my life. Yeah. And 
I've had the pleasure of meeting and working with a number of, of superstars, iconic players. Right. And each one of them has, you know, a really unique story. And I was really drawn to that too. So I think the, the NBA itself lends itself to that kind of like um, storytelling and, and, you know, whether it's Shakespearean or whether it's just something like, you know, that happens during the course of the game, it's these wild moments. Uh, that's really what drew, drew me into basketball and why I love it to this day. Right. And, and you know, when, when you say these things and, the mystique, the the players, the, how they drew you in, and you said, you know, some of that is lost with the younger generations because of this increased access. And while there are certainly some positives to that, uh, I'll, I'll sort of build off of that in sort of the way that the NBA models its, uh, t- well, let's say TV structure, social media, and you know, you've, uh, you're now you're working uh, uh, as an owner in an independent realm. Do you see that when if you're off from the league, you're so you're in a separate entity. Do you feel as though that changes your perspective on how people appreciate the game, or is it you know being being an internal player versus an external player? Yeah. Do you do you see yeah. that as an issue? Are there challenges to that? What, why don't you talk about that a little bit? I I think it is an issue actually. To okay. be quite honest, I think when you work, you know, you, you might love uh, say you love soccer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've, you've, you played as a youth and you follow your favorite team, and your favorite players. And, and, you know, that mystique I talk about is still kind of there and you kind of wish you knew more and you wish you could, you know, kind of like follow and travel with your favorite athletes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when you work for something, you see how the sausage is made, <laughs> you know, and you kind of you kind of lose a little bit of the mystique. You lose a little bit of the, 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 the excitement of, of what's to come because you kind of know, you know, all the ins and outs. And sometimes that can be an issue for fandom, Hmm. you know, like you're, you know, in my role, you're kind of trained to not cheer, you know, when you're in Uh in an arena or in a press box or, and that does affect you, you know, you kind of lose a little bit of that spirit, um, of, of the of the game and the and the competition, so I do think it's a bit of an issue. I think it's obviously manageable, mm-hmm. but I think when you're kind of inside the trenches or behind the scenes, it does kind of impact how you view something. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of me that's a little bit of um, uh, a part of me that's a little bit of traditionalist. Like I I do like being able to kind of look from the outside in mm-hmm. a lot, but having had the vantage point that I've had over the last 30 years, like I, I wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah. Um, and I probably appreciate more aspects of the business okay. than I would have if I didn't okay. work inside of it. I see. I, I see. And, and when you say that, I, uh, from a personal standpoint, I'm, I'm worried because, you know, if I, well, I don't want to say worried, but it's interesting when you say it like that, because, you know, I don't want to lose that sort of attachment that I've had to. So uh, as a New York native, being appreciative of the Yankees, the Giants, the Knicks, um, you know, those are my teams. And it'll be interesting, you know, going forward when people go into the industry nowadays, I'll be interested to see if they have that sort of same experience that you did seeing the business acts point, maybe gaining a new perspective and, you know, pivoting from that, going into sort of the way that sports are presented now. And uh, we're going to close with this here for uh, these final couple questions here. I want to know, in terms of, well, I'll use the example of the Super Bowl. You know, we just came off a fantastic one. And, 
you know, the way that the game was presented, we have our traditional media outlets. You know, I'm sure when the ratings come out, there will be 100 million people who tuned into NBC last night to watch to watch the Bengals play the Rams. And it will be a, a revenue success for the league, for all the teams that get that equal share of the money. And, you know, I'm sure it's successful for them, but the way things are changing now, do you see that mystique we discussed? Do you see that being lost if the if the traditional platforms go the wayside if we go more into the streaming stuff into i know one of the advertisements we saw last night was prime video is going to be exclusively streaming thursday night football and that that's that's huge i mean i was talking to my dad he was like no way i'm not going to tune into thursday night football if i have to pay extra so uh, just g- give us your give us your thoughts on that sort of the way are we losing that sort of aura and attachment to sports by doing stuff like that I think it's a little bit of a mix because I know that I know it's coming. Mm-hmm. I know, you know, your, your dad's not wrong. Like it, it's going to happen. Yeah. But I think the, the networks, the leagues, the media partners are, are fighting against that tide a little bit. I think they're, I think they're trying to keep some of the traditional linear experiences. Okay. Uh, thus, you know, watching on your television or, you know, some, some mode mode like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but we have to acknowledge that, this is coming and we have to embrace it. Uh, we can still, I think you'll still get content delivered across all different kinds of platforms. I don't think we're going to anytime soon have a day where it's just all streaming, but I think we're moving towards the direction of having more and more content on streaming and people like your dad and myself, um, are just going to have to kind of like adapt a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the NFL, obviously you know has the most valuable content out there in terms of sports yes so you know they're they're definitely trying to mix both traditional and non-traditional means i think the nba can be a little bit more progressive and maybe even mls uh as well so i don't know if it i I think we lose a little bit of that you know kind of appointment viewing okay Uh, i think I think it does impact, you know, different types of viewers and and demographics. And that's something that, you know, we're just going to have to kind of see how it plays out. But remember, like we went through the same thing when the Internet kind of took hold and all of a sudden you could listen, you know, to your favorite teams across Mm. radio on the Internet. Then all of a sudden you could see games on the Internet and all of a sudden. So we've been through these evolutions before and it hasn't changed anything. It's just we have to, you know at least acknowledge it and embrace it as best we can to learn about it. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, this is, this is how it's going and I'm sure, you know, people were reluctant at first, as you mentioned, but there will be, there will be these changes and it's going to have to happen. And, you know, uh, to just to jump off of that, to wrap up here, what is one thing that you are just genuinely excited about? It could be the NBA or just in general for sports, these new innovations in the way that sports stories are told. The way that, you know, whether it's, you know, broadcast media, social media, streaming platforms, what is one thing that you are looking forward to because of all these different changes that are happening? I know there are certain things that we're going to miss, certain things that, you know, people may be more reluctant to uh, adapt towards, but what, what give, it, give us one thing you're really excited about for the future of the way sports are presented. I'll give you two things. Okay. One, I I can't underscore it enough, and that's athlete-driven content. Right. I, I think the more layers that are removed between the athlete and the fan, the greater and, and richer the experience is to get to understand who these people are, how they came to be who they are. And I think 
the athlete driven concept, the model is starting to permeate across different platforms. You know, there's less of the traditional um, access to athletes is more direct via social. So I love the fact that I can learn more about my favorite athletes uh, on and off the playing field. Secondly, and this is a little kind of like completely skewed different mixed reality. Okay. I think, I think mixed reality is the future of sport. I've, I've never been a huge uh, proponent of virtual reality. I, I think there's a lot of money that was infused into that business, but it really hasn't played out. I think, you know, um, augmented reality mm-hmm. is certainly something that is gaining more popularity, how it kind of like, you know, is introduced into sport more mainstream remains to be seen, but mixed reality, which is kind of a combination of both. Uh-huh think is where leagues are going to start playing with over the next few years. And that's something I'm really looking forward to probably the next decade is how games uh, and stories are being presented in this mixed reality where you're literally in an environment where you kind of pick and choose things that you want to see and interact with. And all this information coming at you, I think it'll just transform the entire essence of sport what and, is, and how, yeah. how we view it. What is remarkable about what you just said there is that you are now the fourth person to mention this. Everyone, yes, this is this is a it's amazing. Um, many of us who have just many we've been talking with some NBA some uh some NBA content people. All of them have said that VR and this Web 3.0, this ability to be immersed in that world, is going to be such a big factor going forward. It's amazing that. All of all of these, all of you guys who are in the, who have been in or are in these high level positions, they see this as the future. So definitely going to be something worth to to certainly be watching going forward. And you know, David, we really appreciate your time with us today. And before I let you go, just your thoughts on the NBA right now, just in terms of a pure sport aspect. Uh, are are we excited for the for the playoffs this year? Are we excited for the play in tournament? Or Things you're looking forward to? Any thoughts on that? Anybody you're rooting for? I love everything about it because we, similar to what we just went through the NFL season, I don't know if there's like a clear favorite. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and I think we need more of that in sport. So mm-hmm. right now I'm really glued to see what's happening, uh, you know, kind of in those play-in spots. You've got New Orleans that's kind of battling Portland right now, which mm-hmm. would be kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the top level, Phoenix – Golden State, like all those teams are still going to be there. I think we've got a rematch coming between Milwaukee and Phoenix. I, uh, I, yeah, <laughs> that that's kind of where my where my head is going right now. Uh-huh. But I'm loving all the kind of jockeying and, and you know different player moves and so forth as teams try to kind of fight for those spots. I, you know what, Milwaukee Phoenix. I think any NBA fan would appreciate a rematch with Giannis back out there, uh, Chris Paul getting to strut his stuff again. I think yeah. I, I think people would love to see that. And David, we really appreciate your time on the show. We loved having you. Thanks for talking some NBA and the future sport content with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.